11, but also from Hmm. I should read a few words from Romans 9. I thought I had given those up as well. Let's read first from Romans 9. First of all, the first seven verses. Romans 9, verse 1, hear the Word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then let us go to Romans 11, verse 13. Romans 11, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, or anyway, something in between Romans 9 and 11. So this afternoon, I'd like to preach to you God's Word concerning Romans 11, the verses 1 to 12. Let's read that together. Romans 11, verse 1, the Word of God. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a, and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is the Word of God. After the proclamation of God's Word, we praise God with the words of Him. 79, stanza 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there are at least two subjects before us this afternoon. The one has to do with the power of the grace of God, and the other one has to do with the future of Israel. 
The question is, what do you make of Israel? Is there anything special at all between God and the people of Israel today? Maybe you grew up like me thinking, it's all over. There's nothing. They rejected Christ. Now they are just like every other nation on the face of the earth. At the same time, you may be aware that there are others who still have great expectations for Israel. There are varieties on this, but there are dispensationalists who generally take the view that in the end, just before the second coming of our Lord, Israel as a nation will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. I certainly hope it happens. The two questions are obviously interrelated. If you have little appreciation for the power of God's grace, you will not be open to any of this. But if you see the amazing grace of God in your own life and in the lives of those around you, then you know God can do anything. What am I but an observer of the gracious things that God does? And related to that, there's also this question, just how much power do the promises of God have? God made promises to Israel. God makes promises to you, promises that have to do with your children. These are promises not just about you, but about descendants after you. Just how much power do the promises of God have? Every time we have baptism, what is it but a symbol of the promises of God? How long do those promises last? Do they expire at some point? Paul, too, is appealing to the promises of God. Did you catch that in chapter 9, verse 4? It's what makes him emotional as he appeals to this. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. It doesn't belong to us Gentiles, he says. It belongs to them, my Jewish people. It all belongs to His people, and that's what breaks His heart. And so what we need to do this afternoon is listen carefully to the Word of God. I don't mind admitting that, well, this is the first time in this sermon that I prepared a sermon on chapters 9 to 11. In 39 years, first time on chapters 9 to 11. It's not the first time I wrestle with these chapters. Over the years in courses on Romans and the seminary, we work together through many of the deeper issues of this great letter, and the objective of students and ministers and professors is to hear the Word of God afresh every time and to be open to the idea that maybe the last time you heard it and read it and studied it, you didn't quite hear it rightly. It's the objective of every worship service, to be open afresh to the Word of God and not to the opinions and the traditions that you've always held. The truth is, I don't think there's any man in history who had a deeper understanding and appreciation of the amazing grace of God than the Apostle Paul. I don't belong to that school that says the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament is all grace. I think there was lots of, old te- lots of grace in the Old Testament. Nothing would have happened if it wasn't for the grace of God. But I do believe that no one Spare our Lord Jesus Christ, who had insight into all things, but no human being, regular human being, had as much insight into the grace of God as the Apostle Paul. 
Small wonder that he has wonderful things to say on this point. So God's Word comes to you under this theme. The Apostle Paul proclaims the power of the grace of God to Israel. We'll see why it's still there for Israel. Secondly, how they missed it. And thirdly, how it may yet be displayed, namely to them. Why it's still there, how they missed it, how it yet may be displayed. Brothers and sisters, it's very striking how Paul, on the one hand, wrestles in Romans 9 with the deep questions of election and reprobation. We didn't read all those pieces, but they're there. In chapter 9, he goes deeply into these questions of Jacob and, and, and Esau. And, and then in chapter 10, he speaks about the power of the gospel and its proclamation. And to him, these are not contradictory at all. Even in the face of the decree of God, he comes to the great conclusion in 10 verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It begs the question of 11 verse 1 then. What about Israel? Did God reject His people? After all the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and David, and so many others, did He turn away from them all, reject them, and say they're done and finished? Paul actually answers that question in this piece of Scripture with the most emphatic, no, by no means. And then he actually gives us no fewer than four arguments to show that God has not rejected His people. He has not abandoned Israel. The first one you could call the, the Paul argument. He, he points out that he himself, the missionary to the Gentiles, that's what he calls himself in Ephesians, is a Jew. He is exhibit A. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, look at me. What am I? I'm Jewish. I'm a Jew, and I was as blasphemous and hardened a Jew as they ever come. I persecuted the church, pursued Christians. Can you say that God has given up on the Jews when He hasn't given up on me? As Luther already said, if God had cast away His people, then above all, He would have cast away the Apostle Paul, who fought against Him with all His strength. Implicitly, Paul's saying, the existence of Jewish Christians like myself is telling evidence that God has not rejected His people. There's a second argument tucked away in verse 2 where Paul says, God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. You could call it the election argument. In chapter 9 and elsewhere in Paul, you learn that to foreknow is more than to foresee. God has determined, foreordained, to bring Jews to faith in Him. Do we know who they all are? No, but God does. Romans 8, verse 29, those God foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. So if they are predestined, they will surely believe. A third argument here you could call the Elijah argument, verses 2 to 4. You know the story, maybe. In 1 Kings 19, Ahab, the king of Israel, massacred the prophets. And Queen Jezebel, the queen of Israel, sent death threats to Elijah, and Elijah fled for his life into the desert. He came to a broom tree, he sat under it, and he prayed that he might just die. 
Paul quotes his prayer, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah imagined that the grace of God was going to come to an end with him, and he was even willing to let it die with him. But Paul points out that God came to Elijah and said, that in actuality there were 7,000 who had not bowed to Baal. And 7,000 is probably not meant as a literal and exact number, but rather it means completion, totality. There are more than you can count, Elijah. Elijah presumed to number the elect, but failed to get beyond himself. God had preserved the elect beyond number for himself. In other words, Paul is saying there has always been a faithful remnant. The spiritual Israel within Israel, even during times when it really seemed like Israel had rejected God and God Israel. Wasn't this the case even as Paul was writing this? Paul is often referred to as the apostle of the Gentiles, but it's not as if there were no Jewish people in those churches. What is the main message of the apostles to the Jewish people in the book of Acts? They go first to the, to the Jewish people throughout Acts. And the message again and again is men, women, people of Israel, the Messiah, you spent the centuries looking for Him and longing for Him, and when He finally came, you killed Him. This Jesus, you put Him to death by nailing Him to the cross. On the day of Pentecost, Peter addresses the crowds with these words, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, men of Israel, brothers, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized. Then we read, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to that number that day. 3,000, probably most of them Jewish people. And from then on, were the Jews not, were the churches not made of, of Gentiles and Jews together? Even in Asia Minor, probably every congregation had some Jews who had been dispersed throughout the region. No, it's not the nation, but there's a remnant, a remnant that might have been quite a size. Paul reminds the Romans of that day, the Romans of that. Verse 5, so too, like in Elijah's day, at the present time, there is a remnant. And a remnant, you can take that two ways. You can take it negatively, there's only a remnant. But you can take it also positively and mean at least a remnant is saved. Paul seems to mean it positively here. As one scholar puts it, God's preservation of a Jewish remnant not only proves God's faithfulness to Israel, but it is the seed with which God sows and grows the renewed people of God. And then there's even a third argument, a fourth argument rather. You could call it the grace argument. Because notice what he says there. He says there's a remnant Chosen by grace. 
What Paul is saying is that the reason he can be confident, even with a view to the future of Israel, is because of the power of the grace of God. Because this choosing happens by grace. If it depended on people, it would be pretty hopeless, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. The lesson Elijah had to learn is the lesson that Paul had to learn, that we have to learn, is that it always depends on the grace of God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Paul means this, what guarantees that there will always be a faithful remnant is not that there will always be a set of good, nice, decent people who will always believe, but rather there's always a God And this God is so gracious. It is God who preserves a remnant. Those who believe do so entirely because of His grace. You have to see what Paul is arguing throughout these chapters. He has spent chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 expounding the grace of God for the new people of God. And the reason he brings up his people in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not because he wants to tell us that they're all damned. No, he wants to show, as he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not as if the promises of God are null and void. No, they're still here as His, His grace. Paul, because he knows the power of God's grace, is actually quite optimistic about what God might do for his brothers. Part of Paul and of the Christian church wants to say, it's over, but Paul's actually saying here, beware, God is gracious. Maybe it's not over. It's not over as long as the grace of God is there. It's a reason for rejoicing with respect to all the promises that God makes to us. It's always a reason for rejoicing when children are baptized in church. But I know that for many people it's very painful. Painful because, because you have a child, one or maybe more, who was also baptized and today they don't see the inside of a church. And you despair for that child. You say in your heart, it's over. But the gospel says, it's not over. The promises of God say, it's not over. It's not over as long as the person is alive. Your child is alive. Who knows what God will yet do in the, in the life of such a person? And if it happens, it happens by the grace of God, doesn't it? Well, the grace of God is powerful. The promises of God are powerful. Was there a best before date attached to the promises of baptism? Shouldn't that shape our actions and our prayers? It's precisely the people who profess that everything is of grace who don't give up in their prayers. It's not a contradiction to believe everything flows out of the God who decrees and God who is gracious and meanwhile to pray. Because in prayer we acknowledge our own dependence. We acknowledge everything comes from God. And so we say, God, now I have to leave him or her up to you. You always had to do that. 
But now you realize it. Look at Paul, Romans 9, election, reprobation, Romans 10. Preaching must happen. The means of grace must continue. Romans 11, verse 11. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Don't become fatalistic about the way God works. If Paul doesn't, why should we? And there's more of this because Paul doesn't only tell us the grace of God is still there, but he also tells us how they missed it. Because notice what he does. When he mentions grace in verse 5, he expands on that in verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What a great verse that is. And when he says in verse 7, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. It's too bad, if I may say so, that the ESV doesn't draw this out more sharply in, in, in verse 7. The NIV is preferable here. What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, it says. Or the NLT, so this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. Paul wants to emphasize the, the seriousness, the earnestness with which they sought this righteousness. It was not for lack of zeal they missed it. It was not because of insincerity they missed it. The, even the scribes and the Pharisees and, 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 the, and the Gospels are sincere. What was it then? Well, if you want a good commentary on this, you can find it one chapter earlier in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Let's look at that together. 10 verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The problem was they sought it earnestly, but they sought it from themselves. They did not see it as the righteousness that comes freely of grace, but they sought to establish their own. This is what Paul is saying in verses 6 and 7. Israel sought righteousness, but they did not see it as something that comes for free of grace in Christ. But all of them, except the elect, they sought it through their own works. Not through Christ's works and Christ's righteousness, through their own, not by confessing their own inadequacy and the sufficiency of the grace of God. Look at the Gospels. Read the Gospels. When Christ takes issue with the, with the leaders of the church, what's the problem? The problem is they're resting on their own righteousness. They don't know of this dependence on the grace of God. And you have to realize that this can take various forms. I'm sure that Paul 
saw this with the leaders of Israel, even with himself. What was happening when the leaders of Israel put Jesus to death and persecuted the Christians? They had zeal. They were sincere. They were even seeking earnestly the favor of God, precisely by trying to get rid of this Jesus and all his followers. Read about Paul and Saul in the book of Acts, and, and he, saw, he did everything that he did sincerely, even before he was a Christian. He sincerely thought the thing to do in obedience to God is to get rid of these Christians, and he sought to do this by his works and to be a good person in that way. It was a terrible mistake, a terrible sin, but that's what he did. And so to the, the leaders of the church... And so a hardening comes upon them, verses 9 and 10. Paul quotes Moses and David there to show it's not something new. It's how God has always treated Israel. If they turned from Him as they did so often, He would turn from them. He would let them have what they showed they wanted. Hardening is a, is a fitting response to a proud spirit. When people choose so adamantly against God and His grace, God will give them over to what they choose. Romans 1 and Romans 2 apply also to the Jewish people. Pride and self-centeredness lead to hardness and lovelessness. Rejection of God leads to rejection from God, and it's never a pretty picture. Our culture is so wrong, you can have all the zeal and all the sincerity and still be so very, very wrong. But the point is, seeking to establish your own righteousness does not have to be driven by hostility and bitterness and wrath. It can also be much more subtle than that. I suspect that for the majority of Jews in Paul's day, it was just a matter of taking for granted their, their place among God's people, just a matter of being quite confident that their regular everyday deeds were enough, and they might never have lifted a single finger against Jesus or any of His followers, but still were seeking to establish their own righteousness. Isn't that a tremendous warning for us? It's a passage that's screaming at you and me and saying, what do you make of the grace of God? Where do you find your standing with God? Do those commandments you heard this morning lead you to pride? I'm not doing so bad. I don't do that. I don't do that. Or did they lead you to humility? There is so much more to do, so much more to be. What will you present in the end when your life has come to its end? You stand before God. What will you present? Your righteousness? I went to church every Sunday, Lord. It was a good church, Reformed church. I paid for this, I paid for that, and would you believe it, I even paid for that. Or will you say, the righteousness of Christ, that and that alone is and will always be my righteousness. That's what Israel missed. That's what the whole history of Israel is about. They missed that. And if you miss that, 
you miss everything. That's why Paul says what he says in Philippians 3. Listen to it from the NLT. Philippians 3, Paul says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was a Hebrew. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought, he says, that these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The infinite value, it goes on forever, the infinite value of knowing Christ my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. So we know what to do then with our hearts before God. We know about dependence on God's grace. We know about frailty. We know about earthen vessels. What about our kids? What do we expect of them? Outward conformity. That's what Israel was about. Outward conformity. Or do we expect hearts that are alive with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Grace-based Christianity, and there really is no other Christianity. Law-based Christianity, I don't think it's Christianity. Shouldn't grace-based Christianity lead to grace-based parenting? You don't come at them with the law because of those infractions of theirs that embarrass you and other people will talk. But you come at them with your own heart because you just want them to love the Lord Jesus with their hearts and to allow that love to shape their lives. You'll never get there if you live a life only of outward conformity. You might manage to get your kids to live a life like yours if you establish enough rules and regulations. But what God wants from you and me is a heart-based, law-based Christianity that flows from the core of the gospel, the core of our hearts, because the gospel has reached our hearts with the grace of God. But if you want them to do likewise, you have to bear those hearts in the face of them and help them to do the same. It's not that God is indifferent to your works or, your, or His commands. It's not that you never have to do anything anymore. 
But whatever you have to do, and you have to do lots, there's still a law to obey. You do it not in order to obtain the grace of God, but precisely because you, you have received the grace of God. You do it not to earn, but you do it because you love this God who has loved you, and you want to offer your whole life as a, as a sacrifice to Him, a living sacrifice to Him as a result. You see at bottom, if you sing amazing grace that saves a wretch like me, and if you mean that, then you also say and you know, yes, of course, if God can do this for a wretch like me, then it's very, very possible that God will save that homeless person or that Sikh or that Muslim or that Jew. Then I live differently. I see people differently. Evangelism becomes a possibility if your eyes are open open to the grace of God, but evangelism is impossible without eyes that are open to that grace. And so we want to see thirdly how this grace of God may yet be displayed. The point of verse 11 and 12, and they're difficult verses, is this. Think of the book of Acts. The gospel goes out first to the Jews. The result is that the Jewish people become divided. Some believe and some reject the gospel. The result of that unbelief of many of the Jews is that the gospel goes out to people like us, the Gentiles. That's where Paul comes in. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, the Jewish person who's the apostle to the Gentiles who spreads the gospel so that you and I also hear it. And many Gentiles believe That must in turn, Paul seems to argue, that must in turn encourage the Jewish people who believe, and it must even lead the Jewish people who don't believe to wonder, hey, maybe there's something to this gospel if even they are following it. If brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so and that rabbi we knew, they're not following the gospel. That must cause Jewish people who don't believe to think a little longer. Paul applies that pattern from Acts to what may happen through the rest of history before the Lord comes back. He's arguing in verses 11 and 12, the fact that the majority of Israel rejected the gospel has led the gospel to go out to the Gentiles. That fact led to the riches for the world and the riches for the Gentiles, but he says, the turning of Gentiles to Christ, Paul prophesies, may just make Israel jealous. After all, they thought they were on that track, and then this Christ comes, and this track seems to go a different direction. That will cause them to think and to consider. That may just make Israel jealous. And that may lead to the fullness of Israel. As one scholar puts it, the salvation boomerangs and then it comes from Israel, goes to the Gentiles, and then returns to Israel. The premise behind all of this is that Israel is not only savable, but God really wants to save Israel. The Jews will see many Old Testament promises fulfilled in the Gentiles and perhaps then they will believe. You see, in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, 45, 17, verse 5, we sometimes read that Jewish people were envious of Christians, and that leads to hatred and opposition. 
But maybe Paul has also seen in his life how that envy has led them to repentance. We don't read of that in Acts, but maybe Paul's seen that. In any case, he sees some of that coming in the future, that Jewish people will be jealous of the Gentiles who seem to embrace everything in their history and extend it into ours. And when Paul talks about the future as maybe happening for that in that regard, it's not just his idea. Look at chapter 10, verse 19, where Paul says, their voice has gone out to all the earth. So, sorry, that's verse 18. I, I asked, did Israel not understand? Verse 19, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So this is not just Paul's idea. It's God's idea. It comes up in Deuteronomy 32. I will make you jealous of those who you thought were not a nation. It's a theme throughout Scripture. God often brought His people back to Him, back to their senses, precisely through a people whom Israel thought were not God's people. Paul expands on that in Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. Lest you be wise in your own insight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. Does Paul really mean that in the end the whole nation of Israel, head for head, will turn towards God and believe? I wish it were so, but I doubt it. Paul could be referring in verse 12 where he talks about the, the number. How much will their full inclusion mean? He, he could be referring to the full number of those who are elect among Israel or the full number of those who belong to the real Israel, the true Israel made of Jews and Gentiles. After all, Romans 2, the real Jew is the Jew who is not just circumcised physically but, but spiritually in the heart. Besides the word uh, inclusion in verse 12 is not there in the Greek. It, just, it says their fullness. It just says, as the footnote says, their fullness. The best dictionary we have suggests that fullness, the fullness of the Gentiles, may not be a numerical fullness, but it may be a fullness of quality, a fullness of obedience in contrast with the words trespass and failure that are used there. And all Israel, in verse 26, could still be a reference to the new Israel made of all those Jews and Gentiles who really do believe. Think of 9 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But the point is, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because he's so convinced of the power of the grace of God, is optimistic about the Jewish people and what will happen to them. He's grasping here, no doubt. 
It reminds me of what Peter says about the prophets in the days of old. He, he says those prophets searched to know what was meant by the things that God inspired them to say. Well, Paul, too, is, is searching for what all this means regarding the future of Israel. But the point is, if Paul is optimistic, should we be less than optimistic? Jews do continue to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've known several. I've known a Reformed pastor who was not a Christian until he came to Holland and the Dutch Labrie, he heard somebody reading from Isaiah 53, and he said, that has to be peace of the Gospels. And he took their Bible and realized it was not the Gospels. It's Isaiah 53. It's a prophecy ahead of time. The Jews are always told, don't read those things. They're dangerous. There's a book called A Rabbi from Burbank. This rabbi, he decides that he's going to disobey all the warnings of others who say, don't read the prophets because the prophets are dangerous. Well, he reads them. He comes to the conclusion, the person who's prophesied there, the person who's prophesied again and again is Jesus. And he goes to the synagogue and he preaches Jesus. And of course, they lead him out. In 1996, the privilege of being in Jerusalem, meeting with a Reformed pastor who was Jewish, who was leading the people in Jerusalem, those in his charge. What a great thing that was. But what pain. Still this tension to be in Jerusalem, in Israel, and to be reformed. The number of Messianic Jews in Israel continues to grow. Jews for Jesus continues to be a lively and worthwhile cause, even in Canada. The best statistics I could find on Jewish Christians today were date from 2012. Then it was estimated that there were 350,000 Jewish Christians around the world. That's a whole lot more than there are Canadian Reformed people. So don't be so proud. Only God knows what is in store for these people. But if we know this God and the power of His grace, we can pray for this and we can work for this. But most of all, we ought to realize this as a warning. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Confess it in the spirit of humility and dependence. No, it's not your works. It's not your obedience. It is the grace of God. In our weakness, there is our strength. May this God open our eyes, the eyes of all our children, the eyes of all people around the globe, to the mystery and the power of His glorious grace in Christ. Amen.